It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on what the jobs numbers told us about the state of the economy. We've got something of an energizer bunny economy. The uh, economy keeps moving right along. Glenn Hubbard of Columbia on whether the bond vigilantes are knocking at the door. And Ray Dalio of Bridgewater on cash being trash no longer. When you look at the expected returns for this moment, Cash is a relatively attractive asset class at this moment. There was a fair amount of turmoil on Global Wall Street this week, starting with the turmoil in Washington over who is Speaker of the House, as Kevin McCarthy became the first speaker in history to be voted out, throwing the business of the Congress up in the air until they can sort things out. The yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Samuel Bankman-Fried spent his week worried not about his job, but about his freedom, as his criminal fraud trial got underway in Lower Manhattan, putting crypto under a bright, hot spotlight. The U.S. kind of missed the moment, since that when FTX happened, you would have thought that that might bring people together in Congress and say, okay, we really have to do something. Things weren't much better when it came to labor disputes this week, as the auto workers kept up the pressure with GM taking out a new credit line. I know the workers want to see strong companies because they want to have jobs, but when the companies got in trouble in 2008 and 2009, those workers gave so that those companies would succeed and wouldn't go bankrupt. And 75,000 healthcare employees of Kaiser Permanente joined the auto workers on strike, complaining of too much work and not enough pay. Look at the wage pressure on things like uh, the, the auto strike and, you know, there was a lot of discussion. If they're successful, you'll start to see other unions striking. And sure enough, today, you had the 75,000 employees at Kaiser Permanente going out on strike looking for wage increases. Those are going to be very inflationary. 
Whatever turmoil we saw throughout the week, it was dwarfed by the blowout jobs numbers that came on Friday. A full 336,000 new jobs added in September, about double what we expected, which sent the markets reeling, but they quickly recovered. The S&P 500 ended the week up almost a percent, half a percent to 4308, just under the 4435 median prediction of our Bloomberg elves for the end of the year. The Nasdaq fared even better, up 1.6%. And once again this week, the big action was really in the bond market, with the 10-year adding almost 22 basis points, ending the week at 4.79. To take us through this week in the markets, welcome back now Lizanne Saunders, Charles Schwab, Chief Market Strategist, and David Bianco. He is WDS America's chief investment officer. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for being here. So, Lizanne, let me start with you about those jobs numbers. They did surprise, I think, pretty much all of us. What did they tell us about where we are with the economy, and how did the markets react? Well, it, you know, certainly on the surface, looking at the headline payroll numbers, it shows an ongoing amount of resilience in the labor market that uh, is is quite surprising. You you could you could pick a little at the numbers if you wanted to by looking under the surface. There continues to be a pretty wide gap between the establishment survey, which is a survey of companies, that's what generates the payroll number, and the household survey, which is a survey of just that of households. That's where you get the unemployment rate from. And the household survey tends to be a, a, a bit more of the appropriate tell when you're at a possible inflection point in the economy, and that's been much weaker. And then the last thing I'd say is, yes, the wage number was better than expected in that it, it downticked a little bit, which is good news from the perspective of the Fed. But that may be a function of mixed shift because so much of the job creation was in lower wage uh, segments of the economy, which, of course, when you put more low wages in an average, you get uh, a lower average. So um, it was, a, I would say, under the surface, it was a little more mixed than the headline. David, what did you take away from it? I mean, we did have a lot of jobs created. As Lizanne said, it said the, the, the wages didn't go up as fast as we thought they might do, but maybe that's not such good news. Well, but there's no doubt that it was a strong jobs report. It's a price to the upside. Uh, we're always excited about the monthly jobs report on Friday at 8.29 a.m., but right afterward, it's just another data point, and you know, no one single data point uh, makes a trend. But the data as a whole uh, would suggest the labor market remains very, very resilient, still creating more jobs than the natural growth of the labor force in the United States. And it's a full employment economy. I think that's the main message, that even with all of this Fed hiking so far, we're still at a full employment economy. Well, let me follow up on that, David. Can the Fed get inflation under control with a full employment economy? <laughs> that's what's the big challenge here. And we can debate all day long about the need for watching more data, the jobs market, the inflation report next week will be, I'm sure, scrutinized. But I think we're at the stage, given the turmoil in the bond market this week, the past couple of weeks, uh, where the Fed should be thinking about what it can do to help calm and reduce risks for the bond market and bond investors, because the labor market so far seems to be taking care of itself just fine. So, so Liz, now what about that? To what extent do you expect the Fed to take into account the turmoil in the bond market? Because certainly we have had that this week. 
Well, I think you're starting to hear you had uh, Mary Daly making comments about the the spike in the the tenure to some degree doing some of the Fed's job for it. You know, the the one unique aspect or maybe rub in this cycle as it relates to what should be happening with the kind of surge in yields in conjunction with what the Fed has done on the short end is the transmission mechanism through the economy, certainly the consumer side, the business side. And I don't want to say the economy is much less interest sensitive, but when you look at what many companies have done in terms of terming out debt, you look at things like the mortgage market and the fact that there's so much more of a bias toward the fixed rate side of things versus the variable rate side of things like was the case in 06 when the Fed was raising. I don't think it eliminates the impact, but when we all talk about and quote Milton Friedman with the long and variable lags, the lag component of it may have been added to by virtue of of some of those offsets. But this, you know, the the spike to four eight, it's the speed I think that we have to have some concern about in terms of you know something breaking uh, breaking as is often said. David, pick up on what Lizanne Saunders was talking about there, uh, and that is the question of maybe the economy is a little less sensitive to rate hikes. And if that's true, because of some of the reasons she suggests, the terms of some of the debt, corporate and, and uh, personal debt, if that's true, does that mean the Fed has to hike more, have to go further to get the attention of the economy? Lizanne's totally right that the lags are uncertain, and the economy has been resilient in part because it's a service-driven economy, but also it's only recently that we've gotten clearly to positive real interest rates. For a long time, inflation was still above uh, where the Fed had the overnight rate. And if the economy hasn't slowed down enough, and of course inflation has come down more, but there's no guarantees that it might not re-accelerate. And if you're a 10-year bond investor, you want to be comfortable that inflation is not going to re-accelerate over a longer period of time, um, owing to labor market conditions, supply conditions, and, and, and deficit conditions. And I think this is the thing. When the Fed goes into their meeting at the end of the month, makes a decision November 1st, I think they need to ask themselves what action helps to prevent the 10-year Treasury yield from going over 5%, because I think that would do more damage to the economy and perhaps cause a hard landing. So I think the Fed needs to act in a way that's, that calms the bond market and prevents 10-year yields from going higher. And usually what makes bond investors bullish is when the Fed is hawkish. So, so, so David, based on what you've seen so far, you think actually the way to calm the bond market actually would be to raise rates? It's a tough call, but uh, with the turmoil we've seen in the bond market and the uncertainty that's going to be going on with the budgeting process, uh, certainly through and into November, because the continuing resolution only being 45 days uh, until November 17th, I think it's important that the bond market um, know that the Fed's got its back, while D.C. is not really taking too much concern with these deficits. Lizanne, same question to you. Is the best way for the Fed to calm the bond market, if that were their priority, is it to raise rates at this point or not? Well, I, either raise rates or at least maintain somewhat hawkish rhetoric and continue to emphasize the for longer part of higher for longer, which Powell has certainly been trying to uh, do. The other issue here is that you know we, we know the risks that come from such a speedy move up in yields and the ripple effect through the economy, the concerns that, as David mentioned, are around the deficit and, and financing our debt, given some supply-demand imbalance. But there's also been so much lending done in the shadow banking system in private markets. So that's that's one of those um, sort of opaque areas where you wonder whether 
something could break in an area where it's hard for, for any of us as market watchers or even the Fed to have a sense of where those potential cracks are. Okay, it's been really great having both of you back with us. That's David Bianco of DWS Group and Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab. Coming up, Washington lawmakers went to the mattresses this week and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy ended up taking the hit. We go through the long-term issues with contributor Glenn Hubbard of Columbia on what comes next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The deficit. It's like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Last week on Capitol Hill, there was more talking. The third best option is the one we tried on Friday, which said we're going to reduce spending some. But in the end, not much doing, even though it is truly a bipartisan challenge. So from my point of view, it's really the responsibility of Congress and administration uh, to make sure that they're part of keeping, getting us on a sustainable path and fiscal policy. The U.S. government has been running a deficit for over half a century now. The U.S. has run a budget deficit practically every year in the last 50 years. No matter if you've had a Republican or a Democrat president or whoever has been in, in Congress, the attitude has come to be of policymakers that deficits don't matter. And we're told the time is getting short to make some changes. We're a rich country and we've got time to deal with it, but we need to do some things in, in, in the next few years to, to, to change that trajectory. 
and uh, I think that's going to be very important. Pretty much everyone knows that those changes are going to require addressing some thorny issues like entitlements. This has um, you know, been just a mystery to me as to why it is that the public doesn't want to hear more uh, about what we're going to do to try and solve the long-term debt situation in this country. You know, it gets back to ultimately the entitlement programs mixed with our demographics in this country. What you have is a system where the, me the Medicare system is almost 50 percent underfunded, uh, meaning that the taxes and the premiums that go in only cover about 50 percent um, of the program times 10,000 every day. And that just keeps digging your hole. There are always good reasons not to get to the tough ones, the ones that in the end really matter. But leaders of Global Wall Street, like Jamie Dimon, see the looming deficit as a real storm cloud on our economic horizon. The fiscal money being spent is so big, largest in uh, peacetime ever, America and kind of around the world, with already very high deficits. To explain what all the fighting is about and what's potentially at stake, we welcome back Glenn Hubbard of Columbia Business School, where he was dean after serving as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Professor Hubbard is author of The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake. So, Glenn, thank you so much for being back My with us. My pleasure. This is something you and I have talked about a bit in the past, but let's come back to it. We saw this huge Sturman drawing, if I can call it that, down in Washington. Media loves to cover it, but did, any, did anything happen that really matters this week in Washington when it comes to the deficit? Not really. It was a farce. I mean, Sturman Drong's probably even too much. Uh, I think the big story or the big drama really is the deficit and debt. We have high and rising debt-to-GDP ratios, and that was completely ignored in this drama, but really needs to become front and center. Well, and that's a problem that Democrats and Republicans share. That's not by No, no, absolutely. If you ask yourself, bad math, the Democrat and Republican parties have no plan and the president has no leadership. What could go wrong? Well, a lot, uh, particularly when you count in the need for higher defense spending, spending on opportunity, and particularly in the context of today's jobs reports, higher interest rates and what they do to the budget. So what about the math? You refer to the math. What's the math as opposed to the policy differences before we get to the policies? Well, the math is the debt to GDP ratios on an unsustainable path, meaning we just can't go there. And we can fight about how to address it. That's a reason for legitimate political discourse. But denying that it's a problem is not. And we can't say that we won't raise any tax or cut any spending. There's no door number three. When do we really start to feel the pain? Because part of the problem is we keep hearing about this drama, and then it goes away and nothing quite happens. And so at some point, it's sort of like the boy that cried wolf, right? We're going to feel it very soon. And it's easy to see why. We need to spend much more on defense. Interest rates have gone up and have really thrown the federal budget into uh, a problem. In fact, if interest rates stay where they are now, premium over what the CBO forecast over the next decade, well, about a seven percentage point increase in the debt to GDP ratio, even over bad numbers, and about $3 trillion more debt, we really can't go there. So what's the solution? Give us the answer to it. Uh, again, apart from exactly what the policies are, but how do we start on a path that actually addresses the well, issue? You know, it's a great question. I, I think the problem is we can't go to the Congressional Budget Office's long-term outlook and start pulling out technocratic proposals. That's not going to work. We first have to tell the American people what's going on. 
actual information. Here's the path, here's how bad it is, here's what it's gonna do to programs you care about, like the ability to defend the country, educate children, do basic research. And then we have to start articulating stories. You know, what kinds of policies make sense? Do we have a tax system that works? Do we want Social Security and Medicare to be as generous as they are now for upper income people? We have to have those discussions. And then finally, we have to talk about gradual adjustment. No serious person thinks we're gonna slam on the brakes today, but how do we, like the Greenspan Commission decades ago, outline something steadily that could make a difference? Who's the we? We live in a democracy uh, and votes count, uh, political appeal accounts. I assume you're talking about some political leadership that has to really take the bull by the horns. Yes, I mean, obviously the president should be leading, he's not. I would hope that in the presidential campaign, we will see this. My desire would be to have a fiscal commission begin after the election, the 2024 election, to really tackle these issues, and whoever's president, to take that very seriously. Lest you think it's naive, we have plenty of precedents for doing this, and frankly, anything that tries to move faster just isn't politically viable. Tell us about the commission. As you say, it's been done before. Uh, with respect to Social Security, as I recall, also base closings. I yes, think done. I mean, those are the two issues. So Social Security had a cash flow problem. President Reagan appointed a commission. Alan Greenspan chaired it. And that commission came up with a politically palatable idea of gradual changes that affected both taxes and spending. I think the same thing has to happen here. We have to ask ourselves, do we have the right tax system? Hint, we don't. Hmm. Let's fix that. Uh, do we have the right structure of the entitlements? Hint, we don't. And how do we gradually change those to bring the budget back? In the past, when you use a commission, is it basically because both sides know where they need to get to, they just need to have a way to do it without paying too much of a price? And do the sides right now have that same understanding? I think they do. I think nobody wants to admit it. Right now, we have a bipartisan consensus that taxes should not be raised except on the very rich and no spending should be cut. That fails math. Where are we with Social Security? Uh, Social Security is actually relatively straightforward to fix. We have to ask ourselves a fundamental question. What do we want it to do? Uh, if we want Social Security to make sure no senior is in poverty, we should raise minimum benefits and then flatten them for everyone else. Raising the retirement age is, is something to consider, although one would want to make sure it doesn't bind on people who do a lot of physical labor as opposed to people who do more office labor. But this one isn't hard economically, it's just politically difficult. Is there any way to get to real deficit reform without dealing with a Social Security and Medicare? No. No, in fact, if you say, let's just fix this by raising taxes on the rich, if you did all of the tax increases on the rich that might be plausible, you might be talking about a percentage point of GDP, that's real money, but not compared to the size of the deficit that we're talking about. You really have to tackle the entitlement programs. Uh, is there any way to deal with a deficit problem without doing both revenue and costs? No, no. I think revenue has to be part of the uh, equation for two reasons. One is political, but the other is timing. If you believe that you need gradual adjustment in the spending side on entitlements, you'll need more revenue up front. So candidates, I think, would include, let's say, a carbon tax or a reform in the tax system that allows you to raise more revenue without killing jobs and growth. Both of those are possible. Glenn, it's always such a treat to have you here. My Thank pleasure. you very much. That is Glenn Hubbard of Columbia. Coming up,
up, we wrap up the week as we always do with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are joined once again by our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thanks so much. Boy, the big question here came up on Friday are those jobs numbers. It really was so far away and above what was expected. What do you make of those numbers? Where are we in this economy? And how can it keep doing what it's doing? Look, we've got something of an Energizer Bunny economy. The uh, economy keeps moving right along. It's not only that we got a very strong employment number this month, we had upwards revisions for the last two months. If anything, it looks like job growth is uh, accelerating. For the moment, this is great news. We got an economy that looks very strong and the wage inflation numbers looked uh, very much under control. For uh, the medium term, very complex picture that uh, the Fed has to uh, read. Tight and substantially tightening uh, labor markets combined with significant labor unrest, combined with significant uncertainty about uh, commodity prices. And even though it doesn't show up in the inflation statistics explicitly, people feel when interest rates are going up, when mortgage rates are approaching 8%, like their cost of living uh, is uh, rising. So very challenging uh, environment uh, going forward. These are good numbers, and you got to recognize that these are good numbers. But I can't say that 
they give anything like assurance of soft landing, and I think the risks of uh, hard landing are very much as real as they were, and perhaps the fact that the plane is flying even faster than we thought makes the hard landing at some point risk look a little greater. So, so Larry, why is the plane at this point flying this fast? I mean, an awful lot of people thought once you raise the rates as much as the Fed did, as quickly as it did, it would slow things down. Sure doesn't look like that message is getting through, for example, to corporate leadership that's hiring as fast as they can. David, that economists will be studying that for a long time. One of the things I've talked about on your show is that interest rates may be less restrictive than uh, they used to be. When people don't sell houses because they're locked in with low mortgages, house prices go up and that makes people feel wealthier. When the government's got as much debt as it does and interest rates uh, go up, that's more money in people's pockets and uh, they spend uh, some of it. When capital that people are purchasing is a new AI system rather than building a new factory, it's all shorter duration and less interest sensitive. So we may be living in a world where the interest rate is less of a tool for guiding the economy than it used to be. And that means when things need to be cooled off, interest rates are going to have to be more volatile than uh, they have been uh, in the past. That's one important part of it. And the other important part of it is what's happening with uh, the budget deficit and what's happening with the government's uh, fiscal position. Even though we've got a booming economy, the deficit is a share of GDP. Once you take out special factors, we'll just about double this year. We'll rise by more than 3% of uh, GDP. That's been a big push forward uh, to the economy. And frankly, our financial authorities haven't done what has been done by corporate treasurers and by smart households over the last several years when the private sector was terming out its debt. We did more terming in with uh, QE and what the Treasury has done than we've done terming out of the debt. And that means that we've got a wall of higher and higher debts, debts finance uh, that is ahead of us. So I think it's a combination of the changing impact of interest rates and the fiscal expansion that explains where we are. And that's why I don't think interest rates are likely to come down quite as much and haven't for a long time thought interest rates were going to come down as much as the market did. Markets revised its view substantially. I wouldn't be surprised if the market it revises its view a little more. Well, so Larry, let's go to where the market is right now because we did see real turmoil in the bond markets. We saw yields really go up. You, uh, two or three weeks ago on this program, talked about a 4.75% on the 10-year, and at the time it seemed like an awfully high number. Now, if anything, maybe you, you, were, you were not fast enough in making the call, given where we are this week. Is that because of supply and demand, because of the, the deficit that you're talking about and how much the supply is exceeding the demand right now? I think it's half underlying reality of the strong economy and what's going to be necessary to 
keep the economy uh, in balance, what Fed watchers call our star, and everybody's just, just I've been warning for quite some time now, uh, revising upwards their view of our star. I think that's half the story, and I think the other half of the story is people thinking that uh, there's just uh, a big issuance of debt ahead, and there's less willingness to hold uh, U.S. long-term debt. Given rising rates in Japan, that source of demand may fall off. Who knows what's going to happen with uh, China as a source of demand for U.S. debt. The changes that all the banks are making to make sure that they're not the next SVB caught with a lot of long-term bonds, that's reducing holdings of uh, long-term bonds. So if you've got more supply and less demand, that may, should be less, uh, more supply and uh, less uh, demand, uh, that's got to have a uh, big effect on uh, price. Okay, Larry, thanks so much for being with us. That's Larry Summers of Harvard. We talked with Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio at the Greenwich Economic Forum this week, and given his track record, we asked him the obvious. Where should we put our money? There's a saying in the markets, he who lives by the crystal balls, he who lives by crystal ball is destined to eat ground glass. <laughs> okay. What I mean is, um, what you don't know is very important relative to what you do know, and for that reason, understanding how to properly balance and diversify a portfolio, um, and that diversification should be of countries, currencies, and asset classes, is something that's important. For most investors to make tactical decisions is not going to be the best thing they can do. They're going to, they'll, they'll do that badly. And, um, and, and when you come to conferences like this, you will get different points of view. Right. But unless you actually have a system and you mechanize, and, and we put hundreds of millions of dollars, lots of money, maybe a billion dollars, I don't know, into doing a technology and so what to try to get an edge. Um, so number one is respect what you don't know and know how to diversify well. Because diversifying allows you to reduce your risk by up to 80% without reducing your income, without you reducing expected return, if you know how to do that well. Okay, um, then I think then what you have to do is you have to look at the relative appeal of asset classes. So when I go through that calculation, the relative um, um, cash now has a relatively attractive um, appeal um, you know, sort of people, um, when I said cash is trash, and that got a lot of attention. But that's when cash was n nil. Okay. Now, when you look at the expected returns for this moment, cash is a relatively attractive asset class at this moment. It's not just attractive because um, it has a relatively decent, decent, not great, but decent expected in other words, it has something like a 1.5% real return, okay, not bad, and not bad in comparison to the other things, and it doesn't have price risk. That was Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. Coming up, changing the world by losing a few pounds. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally, one more thought. Mark Twain said that the only way to keep your health is to eat what you don't want, drink what you don't like, and do what you'd rather not. Judging from current results, an awful lot of Americans are eating and drinking pretty much whatever they want, regardless of their health. The Centers for Disease Control report that the number of obese Americans is now around 40%, and the severely obese are reaching toward 10%, which has some real economic effects for us all. Obesity itself is like just this gigantic economic force. It's a business force. There are businesses that thrive on how much people like to eat unhealthy foods. There are huge costs to insurers. But things may be changing thanks to pharmaceutical companies coming up with a new category of drugs called GLP-1, originally intended for diabetes, but that turn out to help us get around Mark Twain's dilemma. They help us not to want to eat the things we shouldn't. Demand for the new drugs is through the roof. If you take our best-selling medicine, uh, Ozempic, for type 2 diabetes, that grew the first six months by 59%. Mm. That's actually lower pricing, so underlying volume growth is much higher. With immediate and dramatic effects for the drug companies involved, like Novo Nordisk, for Ozempic. The, the newest thing that we really like is the weight loss drugs. Uh, we think that those area, that area is going to just explode. And even for whole economies with Denmark, that's home of Novo Nordisk, the maker of Ozempic, having to deal with an influx of dollars so large that it's driving up the kroner and requiring Denmark to cut interest rates so it doesn't get out of whack with the Eurozone. But the new chemical approach to weight loss goes way beyond the sale of drugs themselves. In success, they point to whole new classes of winners and losers, like the airline companies, for example. Big winners as people lose weight and require less jet fuel to get them up into the sky. They saved an ounce um, on, on every uh, passenger seat from taking out, changing the feedstock of the paper that they used on their United Airlines magazine and saving 11 pounds for, per flight. What? Uh, yeah, and so we extrapolated that into 10 pounds per passengers, 175 people per plane. What happens to the fuel savings? They save 27 million. While snack food makers may come up losers in a world where there's less demand for things like Pringles. You've got Conagra that just said that it's watching this. Uh, Kellanova, the, the, you know, the, the former Kellogg, said earlier this week that it's studying the impacts. And WW, which has worked for years to get you on that Weight Watchers diet, has decided not to beat the new drugs, but to join them, cutting back on their diet meetings and expanding into telehealth to get people the pharmaceuticals that may work better. We wanted to enter the space and be able to um, extend our toolkit to not only behavior change and functional, but also clinical interventions. And wait, there's more. Just imagine if we started giving the GLP-1 wonder drugs to all of our troops, whose waists we carefully measure every six months to make sure they're in fighting shape. Surely it would slim them down some and maybe take some of the heat out of the inner service war over just where our waist is measured from anyway. But if the pharmaceutical companies really want to help, maybe they could come up with something for our political leadership to take in Washington, something that interferes with their appetite, not to eat what they shouldn't eat, but to spend what they shouldn't spend, and that we can't afford. We saw that unhealthy appetite displayed again this week when the fight over the budget led to the House of Representatives for the first time in history voting out a Speaker of the House. 
Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word. I know we would all like our lawmakers to be Santa Claus, but unfortunately, there is a price to be paid. But it's growing on him. I've gained 45 pounds in a week. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.